Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. And now, battle ready with Father Dan Rehill. Good day. Welcome to Battle Ready. Let's pray in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Hosts, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today, if you could keep in your prayers the Christians who live in Israel, the uh, escalating violence against Christians in Israel is uh, ever deepening, and they're they're literally calling out for prayers and help to stop the violence against them, particularly as Holy Week is ramping up. So keep the Christians in the whole in the uh, Israel in your prayers today, and I would say always. Okay. Meditation for today comes to us from Scott Heffelfinger, and it's entitled From Denial to Affirmation. In today's gospel, Jesus' final words to St. Peter are, Will you lay down your life for me? Amen, amen, I say to you, the cock will not crow before you deny me three times. Almost instinctively, we feel the shame of Peter's impending denial. Like a favorite story, which we know so well that our minds immediately connect one scene with another that follows, here we think of Peter denying Christ, and Christ looking at him from afar at that very moment. We nearly overlook the question Jesus poses to Simon Peter, will you lay down your life for me? And thus we overlook the answer as well, yes, tradition tells us Peter will lay down his life for Christ and receive the martyr's crown. In other words, there is tremendous hope in Jesus' words. The church's spiritual tradition finds in Peter a prototype of the spiritual life and a source of great hope. The way of discipleship has its ups and downs, its victories and defeats, and every setback has the potential, through the grace of deeper conversion, to pave the way for renewed fervor and intimacy with the Lord. If Peter's denial leads to conversion, so too can our weakness and sin provide the occasion for turning again to Christ to be fortified by his love. Merciful Father, as we approach the Holy Triduum, give us the grace of deepened conversion, so that seeing our sinfulness, we would rely entirely on the gift of redemption that Christ won for us by his death and resurrection. Today's suggested penance, pray for the conversion of all who have turned against God. Very good thing to pray for. Okay, <clears throat> so as I alluded to yesterday, I'm going to talk about something today that's a very hidden subject, I would say. Almost, no, I've, I've really never heard anyone talk about this publicly. I've read it in a few books, but I, it came to me in two different ways on the same day in two different sources. So I said, you know what? I feel like this is the Holy Spirit prompting me. So I'm going to dive into it. Um, all right. The the whole problem with evil <clears throat> and suffering, 
Now, I've talked about redemptive suffering probably a dozen times on this show, and um, that's a, that's a component of this piece, but it's not entirely the whole uh, package of what I'm going to reveal to you today. And at first glance, it might seem uh, tremendously confusing and even a bit uh, crazy, but you have to look into the deepness of why such things are allowed. So Job would be the primary example of why would God allow the devil to torment his faithful servants? Did the devil torment Jesus? He sure did. He sure did. And the way he does it is through human beings. You know, he can torment directly, but he usually uses other people. He inspires people to do evil. And Jesus endured that suffering to bring forth this great victory of salvation and redemption of the human race. Uh, so the evil is allowed to bring forth a greater good. I'm sure you've heard this. But I want you to hear it through the words of God himself as he speaks to mystics of the church. So the first one is my patroness of my parish, St. Catherine of Siena. Uh, and again, why would God create a church in which the flock had no means of protection. Well, he wouldn't. He wouldn't. Uh, he gives us defense in the very trials we go through. And the defense is our will. Have you ever thought about how powerful your will can be? Look at the people who've been in prison, the poor people who went to Auschwitz. But by their will, they survived, many of them, by the sheer will of wanting to live, the ones who weren't gassed. Um, it's, the will is tremendous power. And uh, when we wield our will against evil, even if it's just an interior decision of the will, it has great power. So this is a quote from uh, St. Catherine of Siena, I believe it's the dialogue. And um, this is what, she, the God says to her, I have appointed the devil to tempt and to trouble my creatures in this life, not so that they be overcome, but that they may overcome, proving their virtue and receiving from me the glory of victory. And no one should fear any battle or temptation of the devil that may come to him, because I have made my creatures strong and I have given them strength of will fortified in the blood of my son neither the devil nor any other creature can control this free will because it is yours given to you by me by your own choice then you hold it or let it go if you please it is a weapon if you place it in the hands of the devil it right away becomes a knife that he'll use to stab and kill you that's an important point I'll go back to that in a second on the other hand, if you do not place this knife that is your will into the hands of the devil, that is, if you do not consent to his temptations and harassments, you will never be injured by the guilt of sin in any temptation. Instead, you will actually be strengthened by the temptation so long as you open the eyes of your mind to see my love and to understand why I allowed you to be tempted so you could develop virtue by having it proved. 
My love permits these temptations, for the devil is weak. He can do nothing by himself unless I allow him. So I let him tempt you because I love you, not because I hate you. I want you to conquer, not to be conquered, and to come to a perfect knowledge of yourself and of me. Very interesting. Um, and again, at first glance, I, I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, I don't like that. I don't like that God's allowing the devil to uh, wage a war on us, but he's using it to build us up, to strengthen us, to give us tremendous power. Now, the other great example of this is in the life of St. Joseph. Um, it, more than in this a book, the, the book I'm reading from is The Life of St. Joseph as manifested by our Lord Jesus Christ to Maria Cecilia Baige, OSB. Um, and this first section, the, it has the Nihil Obstat and it has the Imprimatur. So it has both uh, seals of approval from the Catholic Church. Uh, just in case you're wondering, I don't really ever read Catholic books that don't have those. So, uh, page 26, Joseph is molested by the devil, his patience and tribulations and persecutions. Um, molested meaning harassed, not the modern-day word molestation comes to mean. So, uh, I'm just going to read you a little bit of this. The devil, inveterate enemy of all that is good, foamed with rage at the marvelous virtue which shone forth in Joseph. Satan's wrath was so fierce because he saw that Joseph's example stimulated many others to the practice of virtue. He was determined in one way or another to incite him to anger or impatience and to divert him from his great love for God and from his fervent enthusiasm for serving him. To this purpose, Satan conceived the plan of stirring up against Joseph a number of people who were leading bad lives. He implanted in their hearts a great aversion and even a terrific hatred for this holy soul. Inasmuch as Joseph's virtuous activities necessarily brought upon them reproach and shame. Certain undisciplined youths conspired together and agreed to bombard him with invective uh, whenever they would meet him. This they carried out, even to the extent of purposely arranging for meetings with Joseph, and then, as they encountered him, they would begin to scoff and jeer at him. The saintly Joseph would merely bow his head, and then, lifting his heart up to God, he would beg for himself the grace of submissiveness, and for his enemies that they would be enlightened and realize their error. When the youths observed that Joseph paid no attention to their sallies, they labeled him a blockhead, a coward, and a frightened rabbit, incapable of speech." Uh, the youths followed him and at the same time hurling at him their offensive language. The saintly little youngster now became uncertain as to whether he should make some reply to restrain them or remain silent and bear with all patience. Remember, he's at this point he's still a, a young boy. Where, whereupon he perceived an interior whispered admonition to be silent and submit and thereby give pleasure to God. This divine enlightenment was enough to make him resolve to accept this persecution, not merely without complaint, but even with joy. Now, I'll tell you, if you, 
I'm not going to read you the whole chapter, but they get to the point of physical violence that they uh, enact against Joseph, uh, beating him up, punching him, all sorts of things. Uh, and then this went on later. As an adult, the devil came back and turned the minds and hearts of the townspeople against him yet again. He always responded in patience, with patience, and he would, uh, when he was an adult, he'd always make his way quickly over to the temple and beg God to have mercy on their souls and to give them the grace of conversion. The, you know, Joseph is living the Beatitudes before his son would proclaim the Beatitudes. Isn't that cool? That all these gifts uh, given out uh, really to the whole church at a later point, he was embodied and, and living out within himself when uh, Jesus hadn't even come. Jesus is not uh, even in creation yet. He's the word, but he hasn't taken the form of uh, a baby in Mary's womb yet. So this is just mind-blowing stuff when you see how graced Joseph was. So I, I'm imploring everyone listening to start thinking about this in a new way. When we have trials and tribulations and suffering, um, if we could imagine, I think just to help us in all this, if we could just imagine that God's greatest saints went through this too. You know, I'm sure Our Lady, not not the physical, but certainly the emotional and, and uh, psychological torture that the devil, devil put her through. Uh, we know Joseph here. We Certainly Jesus had uh, much suffering. And when you look to the lives of the saints, it was it was often the case. But there's a secret weapon built in here where it actually elevates our merit. It elevates our merit. Merit is an interesting word because it's something that we kind of understand what it means, but we're not completely sure how this works in the life of grace. So I would say all, all grace comes through God. Uh, and down through his son, Jesus Christ, I would argue even through Mary, the neck to the body of Christ. And um, if we're children and heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, indeed, we are going to share in his sufferings in order that we may also share his glory. This is scriptural. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, what we're talking about here is the gospel of suffering. If any man would come after me, let him take up his cross daily. And also Jesus says, be faithful even to the point of death, and I will give you the crown of life. Only when we take up our cross can we begin to understand the meaning of redemptive suffering. We cannot see its meaning in the stance of resistance or distrust. And that's why an atheist can never see it. Only from the stance of humble trust does the possibility of its meaning come into our field of vision. So let me let me just recap here. So what, what actually happens is God is allowing his children to be tempted and go through these trials to build up a deeper faith, a greater love and dependence on God, and this merit, this great merit that comes through being successful in overcoming these trials. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas, the great angelic doctor of our faith, 
had this to say. He said, merit implies a certain equality of justice. Hence the apostle says, Paul, now to him that worketh the reward is reckoned according to debt. But when anyone by reason of his unjust will ascribes to himself something beyond his due, it is only just that he be deprived of something else, which is his due. Thus, when a man steals a sheep, he shall pay back four. And he is said to deserve it inasmuch as his unjust will is chastised thereby. So likewise, when a man through his just will has stripped himself of what he thought to have, he deserves that something further be granted to him as the reward of his just will. And hence it is written, he that humbleth himself will be exalted. What Aquinas is telling us here that it's the principle works both with, with evil and good. So when a just man, a good man, has some kind of a trial or privation happening to him, when he overcomes it, the reward will be greater than the trial. He says fourfold here. So, a, you know, imagine 400% increase in the grace and blessing upon the person for overcoming the trial. And this is what God's... And in the process, we humiliate the devil. We humiliate the devil and rip back God's kingdom from beneath his feet. Knock that stupid animal right back on his butt. And... Uh, the, the power, when you read these writings of these great church fathers, um, they were so into this. This was a, a, a way of life for these people. And I don't know what happened, but at some point, all these writings became buried somewhere. And uh, the church, for whatever reason, stopped talking about this stuff. Now, we're probably living in, in the time of the greatest suffering that man has um, endured as a global population. You know, we don't see so much from the, the news cameras of the big networks in America because they don't show you what's going on around the world. But mankind is suffering. And uh, Mother Teresa, she said the greatest poverty that she sees is right in America. And she wasn't talking about physical poverty. She was talking about the poverty of sin. And today that's even, I would say, grown exponentially since the death of Mother Teresa, probably, what, 20 years ago. Um, and so sin creates havoc on man. It creates pain and suffering. It, it's a torturous thing. And uh, sin happens because of giving in to the devil and letting him have your will. When you give your will over to evil, the evil one, Again, let me tell you what, Catherine, what God told Catherine Santa. If you place your will in the hands of the devil, it right away becomes a knife that he'll use to stab and kill you. This is the power of the, the human will. And uh, I think we have to start... This is worthy of like some kind of a retreat or a seminar to teach people about all those, the great saints who've written about this and understood it because they had revelation given to them about it from God themselves too. But it's also very much tied into the scriptures. It really is. Uh, our great late Saint John Paul II said that uh, to share in the sufferings of Christ is at the same time to suffer for the kingdom of God 
In the eyes of the just God before his judgment, those who share in the sufferings of Christ become worthy of his kingdom. Through their sufferings, in a certain sense, they repay the infinite price of the passion and death of Christ, which became the price of our redemption. Well, we'll never be able to repay that in full, but there'd be a portion that we can set aside through our sufferings by being a healing balm to the body of Christ, by holding firm to our will and our resolve that we will love God above everything else and not bend to the temptations of the evil one. So I think a good question to ask here is, um, why didn't God remove concupiscence from us when we got baptized? Concupiscence, concupiscence is the um, that internal desire for sin. It's a strange thing when you think about it. Why would he leave that with us? Um, and I think when we read these writings about, the, about St. Joseph and about Catherine, uh, you know, it's, it's the ability to crush the concupiscence by our will that's fortified by God's grace to overcome evil and take back God's kingdom. I think that's why he allowed it. Uh, certain temporal consequences of sin remain in God's baptized. That's what concupiscence is. Uh, this inclination to sin. Concupiscence is left for us to wrestle with. It cannot harm those who do not give consent, but uh, resist it by the grace of Jesus Christ. And uh, there's a little quote here, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So baptism imparts the life of Christ's grace, and it erases original sin, and it turns man back to God, which is vitally important for salvation. But the consequences for nature, weakened and inclined to evil, persist in man and call him into spiritual battle. So, I mean, there it is, battle ready. You've got to be, we're all in the battle whether you like it or not. And what uh, we seem to be being taught here is that there is grace available to overcome these battles and then merit a greater portion in the kingdom. It's an advancement in the army of God. It's an advancement in holiness. It's an advancement in virtue. So, according to the church, one reason Christ does not remove this concupiscence from us at baptism is precisely to allow us a greater opportunity for merit. And by our resisting our disordered lower appetites, our uh, passions, out of love for God, has to always be for love for God, we merit a greater reward than we would without concupiscence. You see, it's almost like when you raise the stakes, so you raise the reward. It's really fascinating. Fascinating stuff. I mean, it would be easier to go through life with no temptations. Truly. That would be so easy. It's like that in Medjugorje. Uh, I find whenever I'm there, I, there's literally no temptation to, to to anything, really. 
it's like uh, this grace period to just live on the mountaintop like you're in heaven. But in the real world, when we get back home to wherever we live, uh, the battle ensues and picks up. And what this means, this teaching on this, the merit through trials and tribulations, is that God is making us bigger saints than we would have become had we not endured the temptations and trials. We would just be average saints, if there's such a thing. But by overcoming the trials uh, through our will, a firm will, a resolve to always choose what is the good, what is pleasing to God, what is the best in the eyes of God, that we would merit this great reward of being built up as bigger saints than we could do without the trials. So don't look at your trials anymore with negativity or, uh, oh, woe is me. Look, I realize they're hard. I've been through some hard trials in my own life. But uh, now that you have this this teaching at your disposal, what a great weapon this is. This we've, we, God is weaponizing us to crush evil. This is exciting. This is really, really amazing stuff. If you haven't got this book yet, you must get it. The Life of St. Joseph by Maria Cecilia Baige. Also, The Dialogues of St. Catherine. Fantastic. Most of the book is Jesus speaking to her. I mean, if you want to get... it's Again, I know it's private revelation, but God allows private revelation to certain periods of history to build up his church to get through particular days of very bleak darkness. So take it or leave it. It's your decision. But um, if God's offering it, I'm taking it. May Almighty God bless you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is Father Dan, signing off.